Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, an internally headed part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is part-time mortician Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left, a man who requires a series of detailed introductions, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from an empty concert hall in Vienna, Austria, Bill Spruill. Hey. And also back for another go at LDLNL is the student with the backpack from the end of the opening credits of Boston Public, Scott Yarborough. So true, so true. <laughs> uh, so, Scott, you've uh, obviously gotten a lot of praise from your last appearance on Language Made Difficult. What's been the most surprising bit of feedback you've received? Uh, how surprised people were that I am a native English speaker. <laughs> I, I know. There really aren't, <laughs> there really aren't many uh, floating around this earth to say. Uh, mm-hmm. So, again, you're going to be starring in the upcoming movie, Standards of Living, which will be coming out mm-hmm. sometime. Did you have any words of encouragement for those of us who want to see the movie? Just keep calm, carry on, and maybe one day that'll happen. Okay, well, that's certainly good news. And uh, we're glad to have you back, Scott. So now here we go again for some more LDLNL. To get us started, here's Trey Jones. All right, you guys know the drill. We have three language-related items. Two of them are true, one of them is false. David seems to finally have caught on to that. <laughs> and you guys have to figure out which is which. And after you make your guesses, we will discuss. Our theme this time is early linguistic technology. Bring it. Item number one, Luietta Barris designed a mechanical verb conjugator for Latin, French, and German in the 1830s, inspired by the design of Charles Babbage's difference engine. Number two, the first machine translation devices, of which there were two, were patented in 1933. Number three, Urban Hjarni investigated artificial speech production in the 17th century with bellows connected to the throat and strings connected to the lips and tongue of decapitated heads. So I'm not going to ask who wants to go first this time. David's all full of himself from last time, so he can go first. Okay, first a question. What was the decade again for number three? 17th century. 17th century? You mean the 1600s? Yep. Back when John Milton was doing his thing? All right, I am going to go out on a limb and say that that is false. Number three is false. No, uh, I, I understand that they did have cadavers back then. What I don't think they had was wires. So I am just going, I mean, I know you said strings, but we know what you meant. So I'm going to say number three is false. <laughs> number two is obviously true. And number one is like theoretically true. So I'm going to say it's obviously true as well. And I'm going to go ahead and say that I am extremely confident about those answers since I can simply have you edit that out if I'm not right at the end. Well, are you confident enough that you want, you want this one to be worth two points and if you get it wrong, we'll take your score down a little? Are you... Uh, oh, now I'm wondering if I should change my answer. You wouldn't say that. Oh, brother. You, would, you, you your, wouldn't your say that. Your answer is locked in. Oh, You're gosh. done. Thanks. It's time to buy a vowel. Oh, brother. Oh, God. I, I, I don't even want to hear it. All right. For it. Somebody else go. Somebody else go. I'll take a stab at it. Number one, I am willing to believe under the interpretation. Well, is it a conjugator for mechanical verbs or <laughs> is it a verb conjugator that's mechanical? It's a mechanical. The latter. Place. The latter. Okay. I'm still willing to believe that because given the right diameters of like gears and wheels, you could write suffixes on, you could probably make that work. Number three, I'm also willing to believe partly because anybody named Orban Hjarna is probably going to try to get revenge on reality. And that sounds like a cleverly horrifying way to do it. It also sounds like something that would be considered a party game in the 17th century. So, so it's kind of easy to believe. Number two, I'm going to say is false, partly because if number one is true, 
it's hard for me to believe no one was doing anything translation oriented that they didn't try to patent before 1933. So I, I don't think that both one and two could be true. And since I've decided one is true, then two has to be false. Okay. Maybe I better go next because I want to disagree with both of them and that'll give our guess a level playing field. You know, he can he can be mm. the deciding vote, I guess. Number three, the guy with the decapitated heads, that's going to be true unless it's a trick and you've just put in the wrong name. But I'm going to say this is true and that you're not trying to trick us by just changing the spelling of the name or something like that, which would not be beyond Trey. Um, number two is a good example of how science progresses, and that is nothing is done until two people do it at the same time. So two people <laughs> came up with the first translation devices and patented them in the same year. So that's got to be true because that's just the way science works. Number one, the uh, mechanical verb conjugator for Latin, French, and German. I'm going to say that one is false because German has so little uh, what could be called conjugation that it wouldn't have interested anybody to include it in such a project. So I'm going to say that's the false one. Irregular verbs? Strong verbs? It's just not much. There are very, very few of them. <laughs> All right. All right, Scott. All right, so I am sold on what what I like to call the Dante's Peak volcano rule, being from show business. So I agree <laughs> that things happen in twos. So I'm going to agree that number two is true. And I also like the idea that if two is true, then one's going to have to be false. Also, I really wanted three. Ah, see, okay, I'm going to change my... I want instinct. three to be false. Instinct. Yeah, I want three to be false because uh, I want Trey to have come up with uh, the decapitated heads. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that after I talked because the heads aren't really decapitated. <laughs> this is a conventional way to say it though (laughs) oh brother (laughs) so what was your final answer so so my final answer is three is the false one Uh, are you sure about that because remember that's the one david picked trey gets a point no matter how this no matter how we do (laughs) that's you did that on purpose well well do i get to get double points and make up for last week when i got it wrong do i get to double down on my points (laughs) then i'll pick number one as the false one Because I want to make it up to the guests before me and the guests after me. So (laughs) he's a guest. So let's start with number three. That one is in fact true. Get get out of here! I I am not so petty that I would just change the name. Seventeenth century. Uh, We wouldn't put anything past you at this point. (sighs) Anyway, yeah. So I just imagine the gruesome scene where he's got some head and some (laughs) some Igor pumping the bellows to get air coming out of the the mouth and a puppeteer trying to move the lips and tongue. Uh, But apparently, yes, that actually happen. It is also the case that number two is true, uh, yes. and, and two machine translation devices were patented in 1933. Yes. I cannot imagine how they would even work uh, in 1933. That's uh, machine translation, right? That's Punch that's cards. Crazy. Punch cards. Punch card. <laughs> I still think you're a little early there, but anyway. Uh, so at least it's number one. Yes. Number one is in fact false. I made that up. You did not. There you go. I did. Look, you know I what? Made <laughs> you made it up, but it happens to be true. It's well, one true. thing I so it is possible. It is very very, very remotely possible that someone did this, but that is not their name. So I will be petty on that one because I made the name up. So the chance of me getting that right, too, are extremely <sighs> The scores now with David getting dinged double for getting his wrong. I did not agree to that. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, Keith and David are tied at seven. 
and Bill still has nine, and I've moved up to eight. You had eight last time. No, I have. Sorry, I've moved up to nine. And God has done our guests proud, and they are now batting over five hundred. It's a controversial right, so. call, but I'll take it. All right. Congratulations, Scott. Uh, I really earned it. I really earned it. Uh, well, thank you, thank you, Trey, for humiliating me once again. I uh, enjoy having my manhood called into question by made-up names. You uh, really have done your piece. And thanks for joining us, Scott. Uh, do you have any uh, uh, parting words of wisdom for those of us here at Language Made Difficult? Uh, once again, I've just showed how good I am at taking advice. <laughs> <laughs> that is a life skill not a lot of people have oh, mm-hmm. and that's a bit of advice for future guests isn't it <laughs> yeah that's what I could pass on uh, well done well thank you so much and next up some language news but first a word from our sponsor are you tired of looking for informants on understudied languages have you gotten yet another tersely worded rejection from language stating something to the effect of everyone knows how the English plural morpheme works please stop sending us this article Worry no more, because the Linguadors at Specgram have a solution for you. For a small, one-time donation of a valid bank account or credit card number, we will give you access to our crack team of language specialists who can produce fluent examples of every language on the planet, both real and imagined. Say, for example, you're looking for a sentence with a subordinate clause in Warlpuri. Trey, translate, I want him to see a picture of himself into Warlpuri. I can't even pronounce Walpuri, much less speak it, David. Amazing. You- and now, how about the town's destruction of itself, chase down and beat Mary with a stick in Piraha? Keith? Well, I don't know what Piraha refers to. Is that, is that one of these languages? And the best made- part is our translations are guaranteed. Whatever translation you receive may be used as hard evidence in any paper and must be accepted by any publication that subscribes to our registration service. Which publications subscribe to our registration service? Oh, if only there were time to tell. So the next time you're stuck on the floor of a phone booth in southern Mozambique with a swollen ankle and a disease American doctors refer to as Willard Rot, think Specgram. If we're not a part of your problem, we can't be a part of your solution. All right, now for some language news. Neural networks and natural language processing are highly central to our understanding of language and language processing. There are many and varied opinions about the status of neural nets and NLP, both within and outside of the fields of theoretical and computational linguistics. These positions are further problematized by the presence or absence of empirical data which can help one side or the other bolster their position. In a recent paper by Kolaber, Weston, Botu, Carlin, Kovuk-Juoglu, and Kuksa, various paradigms are discussed and evaluated. Since I did not read this paper and would not have understood it if I had read it, I will now turn it over to Trey. Trey? Okay, okay. So (laughs) the title of the article was Natural Language Processing Almost from Scratch. And the idea was that they could take a large neural network architecture and using just general learning algorithms and throwing away everything that has to do with linguistics, come up with something that was able to do a lot of sort of standard computational linguistic tasks like parsing and part of speech tagging and entity recognition without any specific modules or any real specific linguistic input into the system. Okay, so that's the basic idea. 
I think this could be the death knell for universal grammar. Oh, thank God. Because they've taken this this absolute minimum of hardwired processing capability relevant to the medium of communication. You have to be able to know that electronic text is actually text and that kind of stuff. But this is like equivalent to just generic sound processing in the brain for, for spoken language. And then they have these really general learning principles and use a lot of raw data to uncover the structure and pattern in the data. This is pointing towards universal grammar being debunked. And that happens in linguistic theories could be recognized not as linguistic theories per se, but as meta frameworks for linguistic was to use in processing information about language rather than frameworks that seem to have psychological plausibility for how speakers actually process language itself. Similar to how in physics, nobody thinks that an apple falling from a tree actually has equations in it. We just use equations to describe it. So that, that would be the new way to look at linguistic theories, right? It wouldn't, there actually would be any, any real linguistic theories in the human brain. There would just be tools we use to describe them. Now, I do think that a clever Chomsky and syntactician could take a somewhat less tenable but more tenure-preserving approach, which would be to say that this research hints at the, the idea that you universal grammar is even more universal than anyone had previously supposed and it is somehow inherently encoded in that neural network. Oh, wow. Now, the, the best part about this is how that happens is a question of meta-performance rather than meta-competence and therefore is meta-theoretically un-meta-interesting. <laughs> okay, I'm going to latch on to the one thing that I understood and liked in that. Finally, we get to say that Chomsky is wrong. I'm, I'm good with that. I, I suppose... <laughs> I suppose my question then is, what are these basic learning principles that the thing had? What did they give it? What was it bringing to this uh, massive text? Right. So, you know, they said that they were trying to avoid task-specific engineering, but then they gave this thing some learning skills, right? Well, that's task-specific engineering, is it not? Certainly, for example, you can train your dog. If it performs certain actions, it gets a reward. So that's general learning. There's all kinds of learning that goes on in animals pretty far down the, the food chain there. And so those general learning principles can apply without it necessarily being anything that's learning about how language works, right? Without bringing out any linguistic theoretical framework into it. They're, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when they're talking about learning algorithms, what they're talking about is things like changing the connection weight between two nodes in the network. That's, based on yeah. how often those two nodes are activated at the same time, that sort of thing. So it's right. the other part of this that makes it particularly interesting is that while there's nothing task-specific built into it, the functioning of the system can't really be divorced from the instantiation of the system. You can't make a separation between how it's running and what it does. So it not only seems to come up with a whole bunch of abilities, for want of a better word. It comes up with a whole bunch of abilities while not being given any explicit negative evidence you can't really talk about a competence performance distinction in it in quite the same way. The other threat, of course, is just something we've discussed a bunch of times already, which is that, unfortunately, computer programmers seem to be finally figuring out that the best way to accelerate a natural language processing task like teamwork is to not use linguistics in it. There's a famous quote from somebody at IBM that said, every time I fire a linguist, my performance improves. In all honesty, though, he did not do a kind of study where he asked, is this because the linguist was directly slowing down the study? Or was it because the linguist kept following people around and writing down what they were saying on notepads and thus making everyone nervous, which slowed them down? <laughs> there are two possibilities there. All right. Well, let me then ask what I think is the most important question. How does this study help us create better languages? 
Well, well, that's that's a you know it would the problem with that is you would again Trey jump in here because this is more your field. The issue is those training texts because what it's going to learn how to do is mainly based on the training texts, and that would mean if you're creating a language, you would probably sort of have to create the language first to make the training text. Oh, well, no, actually, no. That's an open question. Could we perhaps feed it text in an unfinished conlang and then? basically have the computer finish it for us. So, you know, we'll, we'll give it a bunch of stuff and it'll be, you know, we'll just feed it a bunch of text and it'll be like, yeah, 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 I got this. I got this. This is how this language works. You're trying to recreate the conlang equivalent of freshman composition products. Yeah, you know, something that looks like it's probably a language until you read it. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, freshman, taking one for the team again. Which your intro did very well, by the way. Oh, well, fantastic. So we all know that center embedding is difficult, right? When, when it goes too far. And there was a, a sci-fi story about a language that was created that, and then was taught to children so that they would do center embedding. I think you could do something similar with a conlang where you try to create a language that violates the assumptions of the system. So if you could get a hold of the system, you could have your conlang try to tweak it so that it was unlearnable rather than have it finish your conlang for you because there's no fun there for the conlanger, right? But if instead you could try to make one where it could finish for you and it couldn't figure out what was going on. That would be a more interesting task. Uh, it, not, it might seem like less fun to somebody like you, Trey, but uh, for me, that's just Mazuma in the bank. You understand? I would love to have a computer do my work for me. I see. And in fact, actually, I think that we're approaching that in at least another area. So if we can move on to our another story... There's some new news out of Chicago. So uh, computers, once thought to be useless, are now writing news stories for us. According to Stephen Levy of Wired, Narrative Science, this is a company based out of Chicago, is feverishly working to eliminate the human element from journalism. Narrative Science has produced a story writing algorithm that's good enough to produce instantaneous accounts of events that sound almost as if they were written by humans. We at Specgram, of course, have been employing these methods for years. Uh, the last human written piece being published in late 1916. Others, though, might be troubled by this wave of auto-generated journalism. Bill, does this trouble you? doesn't necessarily trouble me. The article itself, I think, started out with a bit of a problem, though. It tried the old journalism trick, or might have been programmed to try the old journalism trick, of starting with an intriguing question. Can an algorithm write a better news story than a human reporter? Mm -hmm. And that one's too easy to answer. There is almost certainly going to be at least one human reporter that an algorithm can write a better story than. Okay, <laughs> so... Well, we've we've all read lots of news stories, and you've got a bunch of reporters. Some of them are going to underperform an al at least some algorithm some of the time. I'm also not quite nervous yet because the bulk of the article talks about the success of this algorithm being mainly in the areas of things like sports and PR announcement. In other words, things that are designed to look like they have the appearance of meaning, but not necessarily to have to have any. Your typical sports story is kind of the equivalent of taking a bunch of you know, running th something through a random number generator and then breathlessly delivering the results of the random number generator. It has all the real-life relevance of a role-playing game without the necessity of having to think about it as quite as much. I so, agree, Bill. They don't just talk about sports. They specifically talk about baseball. And now, come on, the box score to a baseball game is way more interesting than watching the actual game. And so, of course, it's easy <laughs> to write an article 
that's more interesting than the box score and therefore more interesting than the game based simply on the box score. But that's baseball. Now, that's not going to be true of something like football or basketball or lacrosse or some real sport. <laughs> Although they don't discuss it, one way to test your hypothesis is to have people judge its output when it's writing about basketball or football versus golf or curling. Mm -hmm. In other words, things where if someone actually dozes off partway through reading the article, it simply adds a sense of realism. <laughs> <laughs> the question that I have, though, is say we take the same program. Yeah, it can do wonders with a baseball box score, but suppose we take the table of non-finite verbal endings from page 58 of my book and have it write an article there. Now, are we looking at something interesting there? I'm, I'm hoping, oh, no, wait a minute. The publisher owns the rights to novelizations. Never mind. <laughs> I think if it did, though, if it did write it, you'd have the same number of readers. <laughs> Four. <laughs> Boy, to talk seriously about this thing here, whatever this algorithm is, and sports, which is something I care very deeply about, I think it is interesting that you could probably get more accurate stories the better that the box scores are, or the more the more things that they have to keep track of. But compare baseball, which is just a statistic overload, to something like soccer, and think about especially a 0-0 tie. I think that you feed a 0-0 tie, the box score of that, to, you know, to this algorithm, I think it basically explodes. Or either that or it just produces the following teams stepped onto a field at this time. And that's pretty much all it can say. <laughs> Actually, it will tell you that the entire game was an error. And if it's an American audience, they will believe that about soccer. So it won't be a problem at all. <laughs> I do think the algorithm was a little more complicated than that, a little more complex. Supposedly, it was taking hit-by-hit -hit reports for baseball, for Little League games, mm -hmm. and generating the summaries on them. They have co-opted humans to do some of the work by, there's an app where you put information in as the game's happening. So if you could somehow encode the relevant, interesting bits of soccer, if there are any, into something that somebody could punch in and go, oh, that happened. Somebody fell down and pretended they were hurt. <laughs> well, they do that, and there is such data, but this is going to require quite rich data as input, or else it's not going to be able to write clever little sentences about, about what happened, right? And, and the, there is such data for that, and it's produced by humans watching the game saying, and now Beckham just passed the ball to so-and-so who passed it back to Beckham who missed his goal. Somebody has to produce all that blow by blow counter, or else there's no data for the algorithm to um, massage. There's an additional benefit of this program, though, which the article mentions, and that is, it is much easier to precisely calibrate how much it will pander based on how much you pay for the service. <laughs> In all fairness, the article does not say that you pay extra to have it pander. It simply mentions that you can adjust the algorithm to where it does pander. And of course, one can see how that would make it more appealing to people who would be using it in their newspaper. What they talk more about is like, well, it becomes unpopular if it accurately reports how badly the home team did. And so you can kind of adjust it to where it describes what the home team did in more glowing terms. I think the main threat this poses to traditional journalism is going to be for those news outlets that cater primarily to extreme left and extreme right wing audiences. In other words, its differential ability to pander is going to make it much more attractive to people sort of craving epistemic closure. Well, actually, no, you have a good idea there because they did say in the article they were able to kind of like give it a different flavor. So they changed it to like, you know, a hack right 
fighter versus, you know, a breathless delivery versus just the standard straightforward delivery. Now, if you can take that same software and apply it to podcasts, they could just take the raw data from C-SPAN and basically instantly produce right-wing and left-wing podcasts using the same data. Uh, it'll just be, you know, disgusted slightly different ways. You just churn it through the machine and... Exactly. Uh, for the one, you know, like, oh, those liberals are at it again. And then, uh, you know, for the other one, it's like, you know, there it is, the party of no, once again. <laughs> Maybe I can do this. Hmm. At what point, by the way, do we reveal that, in fact, we're not actually here right now presenting this podcast, that this is all just machinery? Is that something? I don't think it's time yet. Not not yet? Okay. Then, uh, then, not uh, yet. I, then I didn't System say error. That. Reboot. Reboot. <laughs> reboot. Ah. Uh, how about those phonemes? Schwa. Uh. <laughs> I gather that you guys aren't really as outraged by the presence of this machine as I am. But I guess I still have this question. Is there anybody that ever stops to ask themselves, is this something that we should do as opposed to is this something that we can do? Oh, you'll never get anywhere. There's no progress if you ask what you should do rather than what you could do. You must do it because you can. Oh, dear. No one would have ever built the first pronoun accelerator if they were worried about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. And you're right. Now we can say he almost 2.5 times as faster as they could back in 1929. <laughs> you really are worried about it, though. There is probably a way to stop this particular technology. That's to claim copyright. They said that some of the stories are based on Twitter. So it's different if people are using their app. So there's either implicit or explicit permission to use the information that they're giving. But a lawyer probably could not prove to the satisfaction of 12 people who aren't smart enough to get out of jury duty that <laughs> it's not just copying and pasting random bits of Twitter feeds to make an article. And that's copyright infringement. So you stick lawyers on them and you can stop them. The other way, of course, to stop this kind of thing is to infect the algorithms with various amusing viruses. <laughs> or start an internet campaign to tweet incorrect information about the game. Ah, Right. Right. That actually happens all the time on Twitter. You go look at the worldwide trending topics and you see the name of some sort of celebrity. And so you click on it and I swear half the people are asking, why is this person trending? Did they die? And the other half are saying, oh my God, whoever is trending died. And I, I've been tricked a couple of times, honestly. I thought Muhammad Ali died. I really did. He's apparently still alive. And, and we're all the better for it. I just want to see one of these sports stories where they say you're partway through and it says something like, at this point, the pitcher was banned by R. Pyongyang. All right. Well, guys, I'd love to say that uh, this algorithm thing here is the worst thing in the world. But, and I'm being serious, I've had a durian fruit shake. Oh, God, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Up next, we've got something new. But first, a word from our sponsor. We need us a prescriptive grammarian to learn us to talk standard English so folks will stop laughing at us when we's a given papers at linguistic conferences. And don't no one go telling us how we should be evaluating our own dialect. We all know all about sociolinguistics too, but y'all just don't know how hard it is when you're a given a paper on Vedic Sanskrit and ain't nobody listening to you because of how they's all busy laughing. So we need us someone to show us about standard phonology and lexicon and syntax and what all, so as we can learn them. One year appointment. Inquire at the Appalachian Regional University, Fort Thomas, Kentucky. 
And we're back. Every so often there are stories that pass beneath the notice of so-called seasoned journalists and news writing algorithms. That's where Trey comes in to rake through the muck and retrieve the old shoes contained therein. The Specgram Saucier now recognizes Trey Jones, who will tell us all we need to know about everything we were never told. Trey? We've all seen these weird conspiracy theories on the internet. And while most of them are indeed ridiculous, everyone knows that the best way to hide a real conspiracy is to wrap a half-truth in a big ball of crazy. And so anyone even approaches the truth, they'll lose credibility by association. Fortunately, we here at Language Made Difficult don't really have much credibility to begin with, so we're going to dive right into a couple of these big balls of crazy we found and share our insights with our listeners. First off, there's Plum Island, which the government has always claimed is an animal disease research center. There are lots of accusations on the internet and elsewhere that they're doing bioweapons research, that they created Lyme disease and other diseases, and of course, these claims had never been properly refuted by the government. And the precise reason for that is to continue to fuel the tinfoiled hatted speculation about diseases and to keep everyone away from the truth. And the truth is, I have received credible evidence that Plum Island is a research facility that works with weapons-grade conlangs. Mm. It isn't clear whether they create entire languages, like maybe Hungarian or Basque, or whether they create features to add to languages in order to cripple them as a form of linguistic warfare. It may be that modern prescriptivists are right, and there really has been degradation in various languages. Now, given the location of Plum Island in New York and the prevailing phonotronic currents in that vicinity, this would explain a lot about the stereotypical New Jersey accent. One question here is, should conlanging be banned, or is that an oversimplification like banning all of chemistry just because chemical weapons exist? David? Well, now, 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 we conlangers mean you normals no harm. I'd like to emphasize that. above all. We generally uh, respect you and think that you have the right to your own opinions and ideas. Having said that, I could see conlanging being curtailed at the federal level in instances of perhaps or alleged lingua terrorism. Now, one that I'm thinking of in particular is, uh, of course, the usage of the word like, which, uh, you know, I've taken a look at trace sources, and I believe we can trace uh, usage of uh, Californian like to Plum Island. And I thought that was a particularly brilliant invention. But, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps it has gone a little too far. You know, like when we talking about things like, um, I don't know, like... Um, <clears throat> Oh, brother, what, what, what was I? Uh, there it is. It's going again. Uh, I, I, uh, sometimes it kind of infects the brain and it makes it so like you can't... Um like, can't get um, to the content. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, whatever that means. Yeah, like totally that. Um, so like, um, freaking like, um, it's behaving very much like a virus here, and inserting this like content into the stream of your actual sort of native content that you're trying to get out and, and failing so miserably. The question is, did the government do this to control Californians, and then it accidentally spread throughout the rest of the country, or was it something that was intended to be used? against one of our enemies somewhere else and it was released somehow a vial of this like infecting strain somehow was transported to california if you believe that's where it started who, who is it they're trying uh, to I, infect i think you're jumping to conclusions here because people who these are study conspiracy theory. theories of course we're jumping uh, I, I know that but you know pe- <laughs> people who study languages have sort of pretty much conclusively proven that about 85 percent or let's be conservative and say 70 percent of any language's grammar is so-called junk grammar that doesn't actually code anything meaningful and has accumulated over the generations as the result, in fact, probably of infection by linguistic viruses. 
We know that linguistic viruses have been around probably since language has. And so I think we're setting our sights too low. It's not that Plum Island is a linguistic virus generating station that was put there by the government or something like that. It's obviously alien and predates humanity. Mm. I was really worried there. You were you were very dangerously close to being a spokesman for the man, but you pulled it out there at the end. <laughs> alien research. Yeah, my, my theory is international dictionary salesmen. Are aliens? <laughs> Sorry, interstellar dictionary salesmen. Oh. Because mm. you seed planets and then you've got a market. <laughs> is the infection of like and, and, and similar things, is that accidental? Is that an uh, accidental infection? Or are the, is this the equivalent of the smallpox infested blankets? It's a randomizer in a sense. It simply, by spreading, it creates pressure on the semantic fields of surrounding words and therefore causes them to change more quickly, uh, thus giving rise to additional difference among dialects that then leads further to language differentiation and therefore the need for more dictionaries. Dictionaries, exactly. All right, that makes sense. Keith, that do you have an opinion plausible. on this? I, you know, I, I like the government theory. I, my feeling about like infection is that it was an attempt to limit immigration into California. I mean, uh, moving anyone moving into California by making the dialect in California so unpleasant to other English speakers, but it seems to have failed. Well, that's because so many immigrants were inoculated by not being speakers of English. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I still think it, the government is the most likely candidate. Your theory does make sense because if we assume that there was a similar kind of outbreak in New Jersey, which affected the dialect there, nobody wants to move to New Jersey. So <laughs> I think you have a parallel situation there where it didn't work in California because of other cultural reasons. But in, in New Jersey, it seems to be doing its job. So what they needed to do was infect the weather in California. That would have helped. Well, that's outside the purview of uh, some sort of linguistics research station. Exactly, exactly. Don't you touch our weather. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we got. Let's move on to our next uh, revelation here. There are now a number of people who are starting to make claims that Siri, the uh, ubiquitous digital assistant on iPhones, is using a subliminal seventh format, which is consciously undetectable and is used to exert subtle influence over iPhone users. And this could explain in part the continued cult-like popularity of iPhones. But I think there are two other important facts to keep in mind in, in the bigger picture. First, I don't know if everybody knows this, but all communication with Siri is transmitted back to Apple servers for processing, and it is kept there for so-called research. And second, there are now plans to bring Siri to cars. Logically, this can only lead to one thing, which is Apple-controlled vehicular assassins. So you imagine this. Siri begins by detecting your preferences, say that you like McDonald's, and then it uses this subliminal seventh format to encourage you to go against your preferences. So you go to Burger King and uses your GPS to figure out what you're doing. And then when it realizes that you are susceptible, then it can escalate this until Siri can direct you using your car's GPS to crash into anyone anywhere with an iPhone. No, I thought you were going to say that it could direct you to throw your iPhone at anyone's head anywhere. That would be less effective as, a, <laughs> as an assassination attempt. It probably could. That would probably be easier to get you to do. I don't know, though. I think in the future, people may have their iPhone surgically grafted onto them. So we have to go back to the vehicular assassin. True. You'll probably get your iPhone in the hospital at birth. <laughs> Trey, I'm getting, I'm, getting a, I'm getting a message, a push notification from my iPhone. It's saying that you're, what you're saying is ridiculous, and <laughs> it, it's, it's telling me that, well, it's giving me directions to your house. I think. Does the, does the Terminate screen pop I, up? I yeah. think it wants me to do something, Trey. 
I, it's okay, David. I think we, we have Trey. I think my phone's not happy with you. It's okay. All my published addresses are actually incorrect, and I'm in a safe house in a bunker. We'll have a special ops team headed towards you to deactivate you, deprogram you before you can do anything too rash. <laughs> Oh, uh, boy. Uh, Siri doesn't like that, but, uh, well, I guess if you're, if you're, uh, what's that? What's that, Siri? Y- you say he's a bad man? Oh, dear. Uh, Trey, I... <laughs> That's not news. I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to finish, finish out this, 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 this talk of conspiracy theories, but, uh, it, Trey, it's, it's frowning at me. My phone is frowning at me. What? I, I mean, I just, I just want to please it. I just want to make it happy, Trey. You know that, right? <laughs> I do. Okay. So stay calm. We won't talk about Siri anymore. Pet your iPhone. Let your iPhone pet you. And we'll move on to another topic. Our last topic for today are uh, what we're calling these recombinator sites. And most people have come across these on the internet. They seem to just grab text and images from various web pages and juxtapose big chunks of it with no apparent structure or goal. One of my sources has gotten hold of an email from a researcher at MIT who died under mysterious, possibly Siri-related circumstances shortly after sending the email to a colleague at Stanford who has since gone missing. To Plum Island. (laughs) The MIT researcher uh, has claimed that a nascent self-aware artificial intelligence has begun spontaneously coalescing out of rogue spam bots and miscellaneous viruses, and that these sites are a side effect of its subconscious trying to find patterns in the information on the web. This is similar to the neural network that had no previous linguistic knowledge that we discussed earlier. The obvious conclusion here is that it knew it had been discovered and arranged for the accident to take out that MIT researcher. The guy at Stanford either got whacked or he's in hiding. And this is the dark side of NLP. <laughs> Isn't that one of those Star Trek movies was about? Which one? Uh, there were so Peter, many. Peter, Peter, that one. One or two or something. Hmm. Star Trek, the undeciphered language. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we now have some more insight on this in that um, it's possible that the core of the AI is actually an escape form of the newspaper column writing algorithm. Or is the newspaper column writing algorithm a tamed form of the wild? Oh, or it could just be a front. Come to think of it, we probably need to check to see if the wired reporter that reported on the algorithm actually exists. You know, one of the main uses of that algorithm was writing stories about Little League games. Is that really something that I think you're right. That is a front. Yeah, no, come on. Yeah, who cares? It didn't mention whether anybody actually wants to read stories about Little League games. (laughs) That fits right into the profile of what we have here, which is Exactly. You know, it's generating all this content that isn't really intended to be read. Now, I think you may have just hit on something there. What if the sort of really malformed versions are the wild AI that's coalescing out on the Internet? And then that the company that has the algorithm that's writing stories, that's a more evolved version that has been tamed. And they really don't understand what they have. And they're putting us all in danger by feeding it more information. And the only thing we can do here is to try to get that thing to write stories about celebrities and reality TV shows so that it Mm. becomes. Fat and useless. <laughs> but it would be very popular content if we, if we got it to do that. There's an additional possibility, which is that one of the ways you might be able to detect the artificially written news stories is that they're too predictable, right? Now, those recombinator sites, if it created those and then used them as part of its own training data, would be randomizing its word associations to a certain extent. In other words, it would occasionally say unpredictable things more often, thus decreasing our ability to tell it's an AI. 
So this could all be a way to, in essence, write its own crib notes to help it pass Turing tests. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's about all the time we have for conspiracy theories. I hear some black helicopters overhead. I have to move to a new bunker. David, I'm going to let you wrap it up. I got to go. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Trey. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we interview Noam Chomsky's ex-bodyguard, Tony the Brick Burkowski. Thanks for listening. What do his friends call him? I mean, Chunky, maybe? They call him Chunky? That's what we're going to start calling you. Oh, snap. <laughs> All right, Chunky, we're going to get this thing started? Sure. Subway? I, ne- I never saw one damn subway when I was in Toronto. They're, un- They're underground. Underground. No, 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 no. That's why you don't see them. They're underground. That's why they're subways. Bill, can you give me an A flat? Oh, what? <laughs> the correct answer is no. <laughs> I didn't write anything down. I'm just going to... That's okay. You can make it up. Okay, we don't want any weirdness. Trivia, trivia. This is unrelated to real life. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. <laughs> Nobody knows that stuff. <sighs> can you tell I've been doing this for three and a half hours? That's some dead air right there. <laughs> I think I just hit nerd implosion level.